Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high-energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues. Sports, entertainment, politics, nothing is off limits. Keep listening, because this is how we do it. Welcome to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio with Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery and Rich Lenkoff of Downey & Lenkoff. I'm your host, Ron Brown. A significant decision involving former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Our first guest, Anthony Michael Christ, is an assistant professor of law at Georgia State University, and he has a few thoughts on that. Professor, welcome. So, yeah, as uh, mentioned, uh, on Monday, a federal appeals court denied Meadows, who is, of course, Trump's former chief of staff. He they they denied his attempt to remove the case out of Georgia into federal court. Talk to us first before we get into the reasoning behind the court's decision. Talk to us first about what tactical advantage was Meadows seeking to obtain uh, from this from this move? Well, Mark Meadows was essentially trying to get his case removed from Fulton County Superior Court into federal court, I think, for, for two main reasons. The first one being it, it, it would potentially streamline um, a number of, of things. Namely, uh, Mark Meadows had some federal-based appeal or federal-based immunity claims that I think he assumed would be uh, better litigated in the federal court system as opposed to going through the state court system and then uh, you know probably not getting a, a cert grant from the Supreme Court. So I think that was the first thing. Um, and the second thing is the jury pool. It would probably be a little bit more favorable to Meadows if it was in federal court than in Fulton County Court. Um, the federal court here has, um, you know, covers Fulton County, but it has a number of surrounding counties, um, which would be a little bit wider, a little bit more conservative. Um, you're right. It's more of a demographic that would be favorable to him um, than, than what he would have just in Fulton County. So those were the two main reasons I think he was pursuing the removal. So, Professor, what were the reasons that the court ruled against removal? Well, the federal statute doesn't really describe in any great detail um, when a when a when removal was appropriate for a former officer. So the the language basically just says an uh, you know an officer of the United States um, if they are sued in tort or if they are prosecuted or indicted um, in the criminal justice system that if they if those um, actions arise out of their federal service then they're entitled to be heard in federal court and not tried in state court. Um, the, the 11th Circuit basically said, first of all, that um, there, there's no coverage for formal former officials, that essentially the statute is meant and, and designed to protect ongoing federal policymaking. So any current federal official who gets sued or federal current federal official um, who is indicted for crimes related to their federal service, they get they get entitled or they're entitled to remove into federal court because if you have them in state court, it might gum up the federal uh, policymaking process, right? Or the administration of, of federal policy. Um, so that's the that's the first reason why they they said Mark Meadows doesn't get uh, well can't get removed into federal court. And then the second reason is that if you are asking for removal, you have to show that you were acting under the color of law and that you were basically being prosecuted for things related to your official job duties. Um, and the court rejected the idea that Mark Meadows as chief of staff had any role whatsoever in overseeing um, an election in, in Georgia and, and ensuring that the election came out in a particular way. Mark Meadows as chief of staff had no uh, right, consi um, consistent with the Hatch Act, to engage in partisan electioneering as a federal employee. Um, and and finally, they, the court basically said he's being charged for entering an unlawful uh, conspiracy. And, and that has nothing to do with his official duties as chief of staff. So even if the former, uh, you know, even if for, former officials get covered under the removal statute, the 11th Circuit said it wouldn't matter. It doesn't, you know, doesn't help Meadows here because he simply was acting uh, well outside the bounds of, of his official duties. Professor, this decision was written by really one of the most conservative jurists out there, right? William Pryor, uh, who was the successor in Alabama to Jeff Sessions as the attorney general. He was appointed to the federal bench by George W. Bush. He was on the short list of candidates to replace Antonin Scalia uh, by, by Trump. So, you know, a very conservative 
judge. But he basically obliterated uh, Meadows' arguments. So given the decision, how do you think Meadows' arguments would fare in the very conservative Supreme Court of the United States should they choose to uh, take up the case? Well, I, I think what's probably true is that, uh, you know, Justice Thomas and Justice Pryor are general or Judge Pryor, rather, um, are, are fairly in lockstep. Um, and so, you know, it, to, to me, it seem it would suggest that from a textualist perspective, you know, Justice uh, Thomas, probably Justice Gorsuch um, and, and maybe Justice Kavanaugh would definitely be um, in lockstep with just Judge Pryor on the, the textual uh, analysis about former officials not being covered by the statute. Um, I think all the liberals would certainly and, and, and probably Chief Justice Roberts would fall into the category of not necessarily uh, excluding federal uh, former federal officials, um, but they would certainly come out with the the same outcome that Mark Meadows was not engaged in uh, you know, uh, you know, with duties within his federal, um, you know, office, so um, he would not be covered there. So I, 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 I suspect um, that the judgment, the outcome, um, you know, maybe eight of the nine justices are probably all on board with the outcome and affirming it. They would probably do so for varying reasons. Um, I think Justice Alito might be the one potential outlier there. But I think it's also important that on this panel, not only was was Chief Judge Pryor, um, right, the, one of the most conservative judges in the in the country, but also um, a brand new Eleventh Circuit Judge Nancy Abudu, who is uh, one of the most liberal uh, new judges who's been appointed by President Biden and is probably the most liberal judge on the Eleventh Circuit. So you have you have very differing uh, you know judicial views coming together and and having a meeting of the minds on this very important topic. So, Professor, what do you think is next in the Georgia case? Do you think that Meadows is going to flip on Trump? And how soon do you think we will see a trial start? So it, it is there's been some reports out there, and I think it's probably true um, that Meadows is among the the kind of big fish in this conspiracy that Fonnie Willis wants to bring to trial and doesn't want to to have a deal with. Um, at the same time, I, I suspect that some of that is um, you know kind of puffery that's been put out in the in the media in order to maybe scare Mark Meadows into um, you know trying to cooperate because he certainly has the keys to all the information um, in terms of what Fonnie Willis would probably want against Donald Trump. So we'll ha- we'll really have to see there um, if anything shakes out because of the the rulings in the federal court. Um, In terms of a trial date, that's a big open-ended question. So um, right now, Judge McAfee thinks or seems to be indicating that he doesn't really want more than eight uh, co-defendants tried at any one time. Um, So there might be two trials. I also suspect that that's that may not become an issue because it will become or there will be many more deals struck in the in the coming weeks and months. Um, so I, I suspect the the DA's office will be winnowing down the number of defendants. Um, so you know the, the the DA seems to be trying or aiming for a, an August trial. Um, and then of course the other big key uh, question here is if Donald Trump is in that group or if they're all tried together, all these co-defendants, including Donald Trump. Um, there's other trials that have to be coordinated, uh, you know, or worked around. Um, so, for example, if the uh, Florida uh, documents trial kind of it looks like it's going to go into late summer or early fall, that could certainly affect the timing here in Fulton County. So there are a lot of variables, um, but, it, but it seems that the, the goal, at least for the prosecutor's office, is August. Anthony Michael Christ is an assistant professor of law at Georgia State University. Thank you, sir, for being our guest on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. 
In addition to hosting WGN's legal face-off since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Our next guest, a former Chicago alderman and veteran attorney, and he wants to add another title to his name. He's running for Cook County State's Attorney, Bob Fioretti. Good to be here. Thank you much, everybody. So, Bob, as Ron mentioned, you're a very accomplished attorney and you've served in various positions in both the public and private sectors over the years, including as alderman. And you recently announced that you're running for Cook County State's Attorney. What made you decide to run in this race? Well, I'm running because I, I think enough is enough. Uh, we just can't live in a society where the criminals are uh, as if it's becoming a bad script of a bad movie as the punks and thugs act out their video game fantasies in our streets while our leadership actually has been hiding their heads. They try to balance the budget by shutting down uh, our jail and letting the criminals run loose without any regard to our public safety. And I say enough is enough. And uh, nobody wants to talk about it, but quite frankly, we are losing thousands of people who are moving out of the city and Cook County because of uh, uh, this approach towards crime. Uh, think about it, the small businesses, Big businesses, uh, they don't want their, uh, you know, businesses being uh, hit by carjacked cars, being run through their storefronts, stick up men three at a time running into their stores, uh, committing petty fel uh, felonies and uh, large ones without impunity. I mean, chain stores are moving out of this city and it's too costly to keep up with theft. Uh, billionaires, as you know, uh, are moving out because their employees are afraid to come downtown to work. And suburbanites, they don't want to come down here. And I've tried to have people come down for plays, sports events, and they say, no way. Uh, they won't even come down for dinner because they're all afraid of being robbed. And why is this? Because the Cook County State's Attorney's Office has really turned the office into a social service agency instead of the prosecuting arm uh, that of the people that it should be. And so when I say enough is enough, that's why I'm stepping into this race. I'll be running now as a Republican after running for other offices as a Democrat. Talk to us about that switch, number one. And number two, you're running against most prominently uh, um, Cook County Board Chairperson uh, Tony Preckwinkle and Attorney Clayton Harris III. Why are you more qualified than those two to uh, hold the highest law enforcement office in the county? So the first question again was why the switching party? And then talk to us why you're more qualified than your opponents. You know, uh, I switched party just like many other people uh, have because the Democratic Party has left us. Uh, when we started and when I grew up, I grew up in a Democratic area, uh, the city of Chicago. But uh, it has come to be no longer, a, uh, it is the party of special interests, big uh, money. Uh, it doesn't represent the middle class, doesn't represent uh, really anyone else. Uh, I've seen in the Republican Party and where I have stood throughout my whole life for fiscal responsibility, uh, making sure we have family values, that we create good education for our kids, and we have uh, a system that makes sure that people can have jobs. When I was in the city council, I voted that way. Uh, people thought then uh, and made the reference, well, he's just a Republican. Well, no, I'm voting for the people. And that's what to me is the most important thing to do. And as to the second question, uh, I'm running against them because uh, I think they really represent the, uh, all the Democrats that are running for state's attorney and for most of the positions uh, embrace this, uh, I'll call it radical view of uh, that, you know, let's let the criminals go, uh, go free. And when I say that, the problem gets to be they view the criminal as a good guy. 
they view the police as the bad guy. And then the victim of the crime, they toss it aside. I'm running to protect those victims and make sure my five-point policies uh, are going to be lived to throughout this campaign. And when I first become and turn around this cycle of violence here in the city and in the county of Cook. So, Bob, let's pick up that thread. Um, There are obviously a number of key issues that are beleaguering the county and the state and the city in particular. Um, What are your thoughts and what would your approach be on key issues such as prosecutorial discretion and police reform? You've touched on these a bit, and we'd love to hear more about what you would propose doing if you get elected. Well. At the time that they implemented the police um, consent decree, I probably have read through all the the consent decrees across this country. And we had about 23, 27 of them. Uh, One problem that we encounter in this consent decree is that they didn't talk to uh, FOP and the police officers. They didn't bring them to the table. Uh, But I'm in favor of... Uh, making sure that we have good police reform. When Jesse Wright became the Secretary of State many years ago, uh, they hired me to look at all the general orders, all the specific orders that govern uh, the police departments of the state of Illinois. Uh, And he had one of the largest. Uh, I have been a consistent advocate even in my days when I represented uh, in the corporation counsel's office of making change. I helped write how detectives take notes. I helped write the special order then and general order that that it became became on banning chokeholds. When you talk about bond, um, uh, we have to look at what happened. Uh, The Safety Act, the so-called Safety Act, took away all discretion from the uh, judges, and it very limited to what it's doing. My five-point program, first of all, one, to make sure uh, on on election day, I will go to 26th Street and tell the prosecutors it's time to start prosecuting crimes. Uh, And either you're going to start prosecuting crimes or there's the door. Secondly, to the families of victims, I'm here to fight for you to both find and prosecute those responsible. Third, to all the experienced prosecutors that have left this office, I'm going to ask them, come on back. We need you. Uh, We need to have those that are experienced, that know the system, that can prosecute the criminals. And fourth, to all the police officers, I've got your back. You bring in uh, those that that have committed the crimes, we will prosecute. And then I also believe, and we see it in the newspaper day in, day out, especially with the trials going on over at the the federal building, that this office has a duty, uh, and it'll become one of my highest priorities to fight corruption. And as Cook County State's Attorney, I believe we have the ability, and I know we have the duty to do that and to stop white-collar crime, both political and private corruption here in this county. This cycle of corruption and crime must be broken. Bob, last question here really quickly. We know that uh, yesterday there was a new law uh, passed in Texas that allows local law enforcement to arrest migrants. Uh, of course, it's being um, challenged under constitutional grounds. What's your feeling on that? I mean, did, did, would your local law enforcement under your tenure as state's attorney be arresting migrants who come into the city of Chicago or the county of Cook? Well, uh, first of all, we're having a big issue with the migrants here. We're not going to blame anybody. We're not blaming Governor Abbott or whatever. Uh, the facts are the facts. What's happening here in the city of Chicago alone Uh, From January 1st to November 1st, uh, we've had only Venezuelans uh, uh, that I can talk about. 686 of them have been arrested for crimes here in the city of Chicago. That doesn't uh, talk about outlying uh, other counties. Uh, The year before it was 28. The year before that was six. Uh, If they don't, if they're not here properly, 
Uh, I, you know, it, it, the issue becomes uh, who and what, and we need to have uh, work with the federal government. We need to work with the uh, Department of Justice to make sure who's here and who's here legally. I mean, we just had almost 13,000 people across the border yesterday. It's a, it's, and they come from all over. They're not just coming from uh, uh, other states. And if they're coming through Mexico, Mexico has the means to stop them. But we are getting mostly a lot uh, Venezuela emptying out their prisons. Uh, those that need health care are coming here. Why? Because we do offer better systems. But you know what? We better look at the type of people that are coming into our country. Uh, I'm a son of immigrants. Uh, they came here. They came through Ellis Island. Uh, and I know what it means uh, to be here legally, to go through a system and what needs to be done for all of our people. We're here to protect our, our folks. Uh, you hear it on the south side. You hear it on the west side. You hear it on the north side uh, of the city. And you hear it throughout this county. We need to be on top of this issue. Uh, and we need to make sure our, uh, the people that are here legally are protected and, and observe and obey the laws. Bob Fioretti, candidate for Cook County State's Attorney. Thanks for being a, our guest hey, on Legal Faceoff. Great to be here and Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to all your listeners. Anti-Semitism on college campuses like Harvard continues to reverberate. Our next guest, Jay Edelson, the founder and CEO of the Edelson Law Firm. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. So last week, you sent a letter to Harvard Law School informing it that you were withdrawing from recruiting events at the law school in protest of University President Gay's response to anti-Semitism on campus and her testimony before Congress a few weeks ago. Tell us more about why you made this decision and what kind of responses you've received so far, both from the law school as well as from others. Uh, thank you. First, I, I don't actually view it as a protest letter, um, but I do understand how some could, could think of it. Uh, I want to start with the response from Harvard, which has been uh, to say nothing. Um, they uh, What we found is that kind of the... The leaders of 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 this movement, which is uh, which includes kind of this new strain of refusing to do basic things like speak out against the genocide of Jews, they actually don't want to engage in any sort of debate. Um, so, one of the major things we were trying to accomplish with this letter was to spark and engage some sort of engaged debate. Uh, we we said Dr. Gay should not be uh, canceled. What should happen is she should go on a town hall, go on CNN, go on News Nation, uh, MSNBC, if that's a safer place for her, and air her views. Uh, the the reason why we sent the letter uh, was because she made she made the world a little bit less safer. Um, she had there are a lot of people who look up to her, a lot of people are listening to her, and uh, what what people took away, some people, the fringe elements, who are very vocal and can be very scary, heard. The president of one of the top universities in the world say eh, calls for uh, the genocide of Jews, perhaps okay. So why is it though? What what is the reason why it's so difficult for these otherwise seemingly incredibly educated and worldly individuals who are leading these multi billion dollar uh, you know companies in many respects to say very simply that we reject genocide, we reject calls for you know, wiping out an entire people. Why is it so difficult? Is this the result of DEI efforts run amok or wokeism? Or, or what's the reason you think it's so difficult for these people to say what any one of us seemingly would, would say in a heartbeat? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it, it goes to the core of what I view as the extreme elements in the DEI movement. So I say this as a liberal, someone who believes in diversity, believes that America is shut off to a lot of people, uh, on the basis of, of race, on the basis of class, especially um, disability, all of that. I, I love the idea that we're moving to a more inclusive uh, country. Um, 
the problem is that that there are certain leaders in the DEI movement who don't view this in terms of inclusivity. What they view it is in terms of kind of reshuffling the deck, um, that there are certain groups that they believe have been historically oppressed and they need to be taken care of at the expense of others. And what kind of the, the aha moment for me was that that Jews were put in the the oppressor category. So that's the language I'm getting. So there are 15 million Jews in the world. Um, I don't know if if they've paid any attention to, you know, history class, but Jews have had just a little bit of issues in terms of being persecuted over the last few thousand years. Um, but, but the take is, no, somehow we are the oppressors. We are uh, colonialists. And because of that, that alone puts us in a different group. And we all know, no one's allowed to say this, but we all know if President Gay were asked about the genocide of other groups, and I hate even saying this, but if 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 someone were saying, we need to eradicate all trans people, she would not have said it's contextual. She would have said, just like I would, that is insane. That is no place at all in any any sort of discussion, certainly no place at Harvard, she could she could then say, because there are First Amendment implications, she could say, you know, we will do everything in our power consistent with the laws, consistent with the Constitution to stop that, because that is not Harvard. That's not what she said, at least not with regards to Jews. So, Jay, Penn and NYU have already been sued by students over anti-Semitism with other schools likely to come next. What do those causes of action look like? Well, first, one one thing which which we should kind of recognize is Penn was sued before the congressional testimony, and you still had um, the, their dean um, make the same kind of just tone-deaf statements. So uh, so that that's pretty crazy. That was an opportunity for her to level set, and she didn't do that. Um, the cause of action are interesting. There, there are civil rights claims. Um, the ones that we are more excited about um, are false advertising claims. The idea is that they said to students, you know, what what our Ivy League and other elite universities can do is offer safe spaces where people can learn and um, and be themselves and we're going to protect you. And um, what they didn't see, and we, we've now read all of their marketing material, there is no footnote saying, except for Jews. If they put that in there, they just said, you know, Jews need not apply to this. No, no false marketing uh, uh, cause of action. But they didn't do that. So that that's the that is the argument that we're most excited about because it's it's going to be hard for them to defend that both on an emotional and a legal um, level. Um, Jay, listen, you're obviously you know uh, your firm has been around a while, and you know uh, your website is almost famous for uh, how. Uh, different, I think it is, and you guys do an incredible job marketing. What what strikes me in this whole um, series of events over the last couple of months is how public relations has been swayed. I mean, we 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 went from one of the most horrific, overt attacks on a specific group of people in the history of the world to almost overnight uh, the narrative being that those are the oppressors, right? That the Israeli people are the oppressors. Um, you know, it seems like a tremendous um, change in perception of what is right and wrong um, as someone who is engaged in, you know, brand, uh, uh, you know, in, in your brand and marketing. I mean, what's your take on this? And, and why do you think the public is is seemingly so willing to sign on to this narrative that the Israelis are the oppressors in this whole affair? So I, so I actually don't have an issue with um with a debate about um, has Israel done things correctly in, in the Middle East? I think that's a great debate to have. Um, and uh, let's get the facts out there. And uh, I'm not someone who, who is, is an Israel apologist. Um, I'm someone who's always believed in two-state solution, um, et cetera. In, ter- in terms of, of the shift, it, if you look at the polls, it's really a, 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 along generational lines. And it's because I, I believe critical race theory has been taught in schools and the way they talk about these issues, it's the same language we hear now, which is that that people who are perceived to be in power 
got that power illegitimately. They are occupiers. They are colonialists. It, it, it's mind blowing to, to apply that to, um, to a group that again has 15 million people on the whole planet. But, but that is the thinking. It, it's almost if you have success, that alone means you got it illegitimately. I'm someone who came from a very poor background. Um, and I'm sure that people look and say, oh, this is another example of, of a Jew who has money and has some, you know, goes to these secret clubs where we uh, point the space lasers and, and manipulate the media and all that. And, you know, if, if there are those clubs out there, guys, I'm, I'm here. I would love to see one of those. Probably, probably wouldn't be a member, but oh my goodness, like that would be at least a fun cocktail party. Uh, but, th- but that's not the way the world works. Okay, Jay Edelson, the founder and CEO of the Edelson Law Firm. Thank you very much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you very much. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Our next segment on Legal Faceoff is the Legal Grab Bag. Our guests are Sharon Fox and Lisa Saul. Sharon is a trust lawyer in Toronto. Lisa's a real estate attorney with Ford & O'Mara in Chicago. First up, Rich, the Trump watch. Did anything happen of consequence with Donald Trump lately? Just a couple things, you know, we are guaranteed to have content, of course, with Trump. And the latest news is he was kicked off the ballot in Colorado, basically. Colorado uh, has been arguing that Trump, as an insurrectionist, should not be allowed to uh, stand for election on the Colorado ballot, at least. And uh, they have ruled in favor of the state election board in that regard. So if this holds, that'll be a big blow, of course, to his re-election campaign, not re-election campaign. Fortunately, but um, attempt to become president again. Um, uh, of course, they you know they have stayed the enforcement of that uh, to give the Supreme Court a chance to weigh in. Um, I don't know if the Supreme Court will weigh in on this. I mean, it certainly seems like they they would. It seems like they ought to, Tina. I mean, the question of whether uh, a uh, there's so many questions here that are constitutional, that are federal in nature, that probably should be decided by the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court rather than uh, a court in Colorado. Um, and again, who knows? I mean, this is unprecedented. And, uh, you know, the question of whether he is, in fact, guilty of, of sedition, of insurrection, and whether that should kick him off the ballot in Colorado. Um, I think the court will take that up, and I think they'll take it up pretty quickly, right, given the importance of the issue and given the ongoing campaign. Um, so, uh, we'll see if the Supreme court takes it up. And of course we know, we just discussed this with our, uh, with a guest a couple of segments ago that this is a very conservative Supreme court. It's a seven, three conservative majority. Um, doesn't mean necessarily that they will side with Trump on this. Um, but we will, uh, we will see how this plays out. I agree, Rich. Um, I think that the court really doesn't have any choice, but to take it up. Um, especially because there are similar efforts afoot in other States, so I think that there's a need for the highest court in our land, so to speak, to take it up. I think they'll do everything they can to not hang out on a limb on this topic. I think they'll they'll reach a decision, but it's going to be in a way where they're, I, I think, at least attempting to look as apolitical as possible, if that's even possible in this type of situation. Yeah, Lisa, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, um, you know, the the question in this in this case was... Again, whether um, whether Trump violated 
what Colorado reads is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Um, what are your thoughts on yeah. this one? I think for if I was a betting lady, I think the Supreme Court will hear the case. I think they need to, you know, the question is what constitutes, constitutes you know, insurrection and whether, you know, and whether that that qualifies to Trump. So I, I do think that a lot of states are looking to follow what Colorado is doing. So I do think the, the court will take up the, the case in a quick manner. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sharon, obviously your, you know, anyone's opinion on this decision and ultimately whether Trump committed insurrection um, depends largely on your politics, right? I mean, if you support Trump, then you're probably not favoring uh, or not following this decision or and, and hoping that the Supreme Court doesn't even take it up. But, you know, obviously a lot of Trump legal news depends on your perspective politically. Yeah. Sharon, what are your thoughts on that? I think it'll be interesting to see how many states actually gain traction here in challenging the con- this constitutional element of the Constitution in terms of it actually affecting Trump's primary nomination. I think Colorado is generally viewed as a blue state. And so how many people actually vote Republican for the primary at all in Colorado would be put, put into question. So I think this is this is the beginning of something and it'll be interesting to see what other states actually um, uh, put this into action as well, because I think that will really dictate whether or not he gets the primary. Okay. And we're not done with Trump world uh, yet, Tina. A jury just hit Rudy Giuliani hard in the wallet over his defamation of two Georgia election workers. And it turns out that a second wave is coming. That's right, Ron. There was just a $148 million verdict entered against Rudy Giuliani for the defamation of those two Georgia election workers um, with uh, with the allegations having been that he falsely alleged that they had tampered with the vote count in the 2020 election. Those same election workers that won filed suit again this week to prevent the same harm that their first lawsuit was seeking to enjoin which is to get Rudy Giuliani to stop making defamatory comments. So Giuliani cannot immediately file an appeal against this decision. Um, There are a couple of things that have to happen first, including the judge needing to confirm the judgment or possibly lower the amount. Um, In addition, if Giuliani decides to appeal the election workers will be given the opportunity to request that Giuliani post an appeal bond, which would be for a hefty sum because these types of bonds are typically for an amount higher than the original judgment. Um, and the purpose of those um, bonds is to ensure that an appeal is filed for good faith reasons. What's unclear exactly is what Giuliani's financial holdings are. Um, He was not particularly forthcoming with respect to that information during this trial. We know he makes $400,000 a year from his radio show, and we know he's trying to sell his three-bedroom apartment in Manhattan for $6.1 million. Um, He was fined because he did not fully comply with discovery requests about what his assets are, and the jurors ended up assessing $32 $32 million for the defamation damages, $40 million for intentional infliction of emotional distress, and $75 million in punitive damages. As our listeners know, Giuliani's also being sued by the voting machine company Smart, Smartmatic and Dominion. Um, he's creating, he's facing a criminal indictment in Fulton County um, in that election interference trial. And in addition, he's also facing a lawsuit from his former lawyer, Robert Costello, uh, for failure to pay nearly $1.4 million in fees. So just like we have a Trump watch going, Rich, I think we're going to start needing a Giuliani watch because there's a lot going on in Giuliani land. (laughs) Not only those people, but among his other, among the other people lining up to get paid are the the owners of that uh, infamous paving company, the Four Seasons Paving Company, for non-payment of of renting their lectern and renting their space. So uh, in that infamous you know press conference where he had the hair dye <laughs> leaking down his his face. Um, yeah, I mean, what what is just amazing is how he, again, as you mentioned, doubled down just the other day after leaving court and reiterated his, you know, false claims. And as we know, uh, it only takes one defamatory statement, right? It just takes one publishing 
which means one utterance of the statement for it to be uh, defamatory and compensable. So he's already uh, facing additional legal jeopardy. Now, can he pay another judgment? He can't even pay this verdict. He probably can't even pay 1% of the $148 million. So he's judgment-proof, but at least you know they will get him, hopefully, to just shut his mouth once and for all. We know that won't happen, but you know the more times you get a uh, a federal verdict against you, hopefully he'll he'll follow that. Um, and yeah, just you know, you wonder. I mean, what is Trump like? What is he feeding these people that they're continuing to put themselves in legal jeopardy for you know this this orange god? It's very very strange, uh, especially for someone who once held such high esteem as, as America's mayor. Um, but yeah, Lisa, I don't know. He, he continues to dig a hole that he will never climb out of and, you know, will carry this debt for the rest of his life. That, that's exactly my thinking. I'm like, I don't know. He's not going to be able to pay this appeal bond that they want him to pay. I think his only chance is the judge maybe lowering the punitive damages amount of, of the judgment, but even, even so, I still think he's going to have tremendous problems. And if if he doesn't quiet down soon, it's, it's, he's just getting himself into a deeper hole at this point. Okay. And rich police in Texas can now begin arresting migrants who come into the country illegally under a brand new law. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of us saw this coming. And of course, the governor, um, Abbott of Texas, has threatened this for a long time. But he finally passed a law in Texas allowing local law enforcement to enforce what is seemingly a federal issue that is enforcing the, the boundaries of, of the United States. Um, this measure allows Texas law enforcement officers to arrest people who are suspected of entering the country illegally. Uh, once in custody, they can either agree to leave uh, the U.S. or be prosecuted under misdemeanor charges of illegal entry. If they don't uh, leave after being arrested, they could face way more serious felony charges. Of course, there are many already, including the ACLU and a lot of civil rights organizations, Tina, who have threatened a lawsuit, probably already filed by today, um, again, alleging that, um, among other things, that this is not constitutional, that the clear power of uh, regulating immigration lies with the federal government, not the state government. Um, it, it should be remembered that Governor Abbott of Texas is responsible for busing you know, thousands and thousands of migrants across the country, uh, including right here in Chicago. We had a guest earlier running for state's attorney discussing the migrant problem that we know is so pervasive in, in our area, but also across the country. But Chicago being, you know, a welcoming city, um, this is one of the primary areas that Texas is busing migrants. So, you know, listen, on the one hand, um, I don't think anyone could deny that the migration problem is overwhelming and is the cause of so many other issues that we're having, everything from, you know, spacing issues to crime, uh, um, to the environment, uh, some of the environmental issues. So, you know, I commend leaders who are thinking outside of the box and coming up with possible solutions. Is this it? I don't know. I'm not a big fan of, of the way Texas is approaching any of this. And I think that, you know, Governor Abbott is, um, is not doing this out of uh, out of the the, the uh, out of his stated goals of keeping things uh, you know keeping our society safe. I think he has ulterior motives. But that being said, there's got to be some other ways to do things because the current um, protocols are not not really working. Yeah, I agree, Rich. I think it's a tough situation. I think putting aside how you feel about the migrant issue, I I do think that this is a federal versus a state issue. Yeah. So I really don't necessarily believe that this is going to, um, you know, at the end of the day that this law will stand. But I don't think even if it doesn't stand, I don't think this is going to be the end of the conversation about efforts that states like Texas are going to make to try to address this issue. Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Lisa. I, I mean, I also agree, regardless of, you know. Regardless of what your thoughts are on the current situation, you know, Arizona tried to do something similar back in 2012. They tried to police, you know, border entry themselves. It was struck down by the federal court. I do think this will be, you know, struck down too. You know, immigration is a federal issue. It's not a state issue. So we will be hearing more about this, but I do not think that his law will, will be upheld. Yeah. The border states are obviously going to be more deeply affected by immigration issues and to leave it to them to solve is so challenging. But I think 
what truly nobody has is visibility into what's going on on the ground. So despite putting something like this into law, it doesn't mean it already isn't happening in some uh, uh, um, element as well. So I think that's the challenge for everybody looking at this from a bird's eye versus what's actually happening for those trying to enforce immigration laws at at that border crossings. Okay, and uh, next up on uh, the legal grab bag, Tina, it's never a good idea to threaten a sitting Supreme Court justice, is it? You're right, Ron, it isn't. And there's a Florida man who just pled guilty to trying to kill, to threaten to kill John Roberts, and he's facing up to five years in prison. Um, The Florida man, Neil Sidwani, um, apparently left a voicemail for Chief Justice Roberts in July that had two threats against him. Um, While the prosecutors did not identify who the targeted justice was, um, during a court-ordered psychological evaluation, Sidwani said that he had threatened Chief Justice Roberts. Apparently, in this voicemail, Sidwani introduced himself and had a message left that he had wanted the U.S. Marshals to deliver to Chief Justice Roberts that included... um, an expletive and conveying the message that he will kill Chief Justice Roberts, according to one of the court documents that was filed in the hearing last week. According to the the psychological evaluation, Sidwani suffers from delusional disorder with psychosis and is under treatment. He's been in prison since his arrest in August, and uh, we're waiting to see how much time he's going to spend in prison, Rich. Yeah, listen, I mean, I blame Trump. I'm just going to come out and say it that, that you know, the, the amount of death threats, death threats to the judiciary statistically have risen uh, exponentially in the last eight years. And, you know, I, I'm not going to blame Trump for all of that, but I am going to blame him for this culture we have now of attacking people in authority, attacking people on the bench, as he's done over and over again, and most notably, um, in his, you know, various trials where he is the defendant right now. He's attacked almost every judge. We know that he's attacked the clerk of the judge. These are things that you would never hear of. I mean, who attacks a judge's clerk, right? We all, you know, are a lot of us on the Zoom are lawyers and we deal with clerks all the time. And, you know, we generally treat them with the utmost respect. Why? Because you know that's the quickest way to get, you know, the judge to um, be friendly to you, not necessarily you know, rule in your favor, but you got to be respectful to the court. Uh, none of us would dream of criticizing uh, a, a judge, let alone a clerk. But Trump, you know, has been responsible for this culture of there's no there's no boundaries, there's no ethics, there's no protocols. Uh, you could call, you know, for violence against the ju- judiciary, and people listen. We know from January sixth that people listen, and people follow his words to a T, and they are summoned to act. So you could draw a direct line between Trump's words. And this lunatic who threatened, you know, the the, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, um, and there's many, many other examples. We we, we know with the Supreme Court, uh, federal judges are constantly under attack. You know, one, unfortunately, her 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 husband and son were shot, and the the, the son died. So very tragic. We need to get back to a place where we deal with judges with the respect they deserve, no matter whose side of the coin you fall on. So really, really unfortunate. Sharon, Lisa, what are your thoughts on this? It's it's crazy. I mean, I went through law school thinking judges were sacred. You don't criticize a judge. I mean, I would love sitting in oral arguments while I was in DC, you know, with the people getting killed. I think it's a very, very hard time to be a judge. And I understand that they're worried and that I support, you know, anyone threatening a judge needs to needs to be held accountable. 100%. And I think that it's hard. While blaming Trump is easy because he has incited so many of these things, there needs to be accountability and consequences. And unfortunately for Trump and many other people, that doesn't happen, which allows these kinds of things to persist. And to be fair, I mean, you know, many people point to Charles Schumer uh, on the on the steps of the Supreme Court a couple of years ago, saying we're coming for you, as also a veiled uh, threat to the to the court. But yeah, it's uh, it's this new culture we have of of anything goes. And Rich, a Utah woman who made uh, a lot of money giving parental advice to other mothers turned out to be not very good at being a mother herself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, lest anyone follow some of the some of the advice of uh, of YouTube. Uh, YouTubers on how to raise your kids. This is a uh, 
uh, a story that you should follow. Uh, this woman in Utah, who's a mother of six, who had a show, a pretty popular show on YouTube called what, uh, Eight Passengers, I believe it was called, where she doled out all sorts of uh, parental advice. It turns out she, as Ron mentioned, not the best parent, Tina. Uh, she was uh, arrested um, and uh, actually pled guilty to three charges of uh, second-degree aggravated child abuse for allegedly abusing and starving two of her children. Um, she was uh, famous for giving out advice that was very, uh, very aggressive, let's say, very aggressive in how you should deal with your kids. For example, one of her kids forgot to bring their lunch uh, in kindergarten, <laughs> and she advocated for the kid not eating all day um, there was other very similar conservative, I mean, other very similar aggressive parenting advice. Uh, she said that she wishes that no one else talked to her kid and shared lunch. She threatened to cut the head off a young girl's tough toy to punish her for cutting things in the house. So, you know, perhaps she should have listened to her own advice. And then what also bugs me, Tina, is that when confronted with all of this, uh, she said that she, as a result of some introspection, uh, allowed her to reset her moral compass, but blamed it basically on a friend. Now, it's ironic that an influencer, a YouTube influencer who has made money advertising to influence other people, is now alleging that she is not responsible legally because she was influenced by someone else. Come on, stop. So, yeah, yeah shake your head at stuff like this. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, Rich. I mean, this is just a very sad story. First and foremost, we're dealing with child abuse, right? And that is just the lowest among the lowest of the low things that a human being can do to children, let alone their own children. Second of all, I think, and this is pretty obvious, but I think needs to be said, particularly in this era of reality TV and people you know, following influencers as you profiled rich that, you know, these folks, some of these folks who are influencers have no idea what they're talking about. They are just looking for fame. They're looking for a quick buck. They're looking for attention. I'm not saying all influencers are like this by any means, but I mean, this is just a situation where you have somebody who clearly has challenges and issues, whose primary focus was being an influencer and not really being um, the parent that she was purporting to be or trying to get other folks to be through her program. I mean, it's just, it's an awful story all the way around. Sharon, when you, when you ban your oldest kid from their bedroom for seven months, as a result of prank, uh, some prank he pulled on his brother, aren't you just begging authorities to look into your life a little further and see what you're doing behind closed doors, right? Isn't this the ultimate hubris? Yeah, it's fascinating how long people can get away with this kind of torment um, behind and, and be so public facing. I think the other layer to this that's really interesting in terms of what percolates on the internet is this friend that was blamed. They were attributing it to like some spiritual community, almost sounds like a cult type following. And I think well, that's what's really interesting that can percolate on the internet, whether it's targeting certain people or certain groups to follow a belief that has is truly a, a, a pretend world, but also how it can affect um, children and uh, it percolate into abuse. So I think that's an interesting element of the whole story is this like spiritual community element. So. Okay, next up on the grab bag, uh, Tina, truth in advertising is still a thing, isn't it? Well, Ron, there's a higher standard when you're talking about attorney advertising, that's for sure. And earlier this month, a solo practitioner from New Jersey, Alan Walco, was sanctioned by the state's Supreme Court Disciplinary Review Board for false and misleading website statements, including claims that his law firm had the lowest fees in the state. He juxtaposed that claim with advertising a fee of $495 for real estate legal services from contract to close. The board took the position that there's no real way for this person to be able to substantiate a claim like that because he'd need to know what every attorney in New Jersey, what their rate was and what they would charge for certain types of projects like real estate legal services. He apparently also failed to include a disclaimer on his website that it had not been approved by the New Jersey Supreme Court. 
He also had verbiage on his website talking about our attorneys to make it sound like his law firm was bigger than it is, even though he was a sole practitioner. When all of this started going down, he didn't really help himself when he didn't respond to inquiries that were raised during the investigation by the New Jersey Office of Attorney Ethics. The Committee on Attorney Advertising and the Office of Attorney Ethics tried repeatedly to reach him, were unable to do so, published disciplinary notices in two papers, finally were in touch with him, and he still, even after all of these notices were resent to an address that he gave the authorities, he still did not respond to the ethics inquiries. This is not the first time he's been cited for ethical issues. He was previously reprimanded for representing three clients while his license was suspended. His license was suspended because he didn't comply with his continuing legal education requirements. Rich, it's really hard to feel bad for somebody like this. That's hilarious. Like he spent about what? $27 $27 on a website, threw some pictures of other people in there, and then talks about his team. I always laugh when, you know, solo practitioners, uh, particularly like personal injury lawyers, are talking about their team or, you know, it's it's blank solo practitioner, uh, the team of it. It's like just the one guy you see. Who's the team? I wonder who this other team is. This guy took it to the extreme and just put on, you know, basically some cut in, paste in bodies and uh, alleged that that was his team with eight locations in New Jersey. Um, and now is a good time to remind everyone that Legal Face Off is America's number one legal podcast. I think, honestly, I think more, I, I wish more attorneys would read this case because I don't think, I think there's a lot of this going around and I don't think people realize. I think a lot of websites now that they're do it yourself or you can make them for relatively inexpensive, an expensive amount, throw stuff up there like this guy did. And it would be a helpful reminder to many attorneys to, to look at this case. Lisa, if you ever need a uh, lawyer in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, will you be looking up our friends here? Yeah, that that would be a no on that one. Sharon? No, thank you. I don't take uh, attorneys from strip malls usually, so. (laughs) I mean, it's Jersey, though, Ron. It's Jersey. I don't know. Come on. Things are different there. Forget about it. This guy's (laughs) next to the butter bing. (laughs) And finally, on uh, the grab bag rich. Tis the season to be suing. And I'm sure you want to follow, 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 follow up on that. Uh, I see what you did there, Ron. I tried. I tried. I gave it a shot. (laughs) Yeah, lots of great stories. You know, this is our annual roundup of some crazy holiday theme lawsuits, Tina. We uh, we've got a lot on our uh, agenda here. Uh, I I looked at some some additional ones uh, that I thought were great. Uh, there were some inmates in an Arizona jail who brought a lawsuit against the sheriff's office, uh, alleging that being forced to listen to Frosty the Snowman and Felice Navidad for 12 hours a day was cruel and unusual punishment under the Constitution. <laughs> you know what? Like most of these are nuts. I kind of agree. I think that like, you know, listening to Frosty the Snowman for even 12 minutes probably qualifies as as torture. So I think I kind of side with the with the inmates there. Uh, another guy was uh, dressed as a reindeer, and he sued for personal injuries because he was shot by a hunter while crossing the field following a holiday pageant. Again, you know, the costume was too good, apparently, so maybe that's not a great loss. And then the last one I was looking at was, uh, you know, these fruitcakes. As a, as a Jewish individual, I've never had a fruitcake, I'll admit. Even if I wasn't Jewish, I don't know that I ever sink my teeth into that thing. But a uh, the winner of a Orlando fruitcake eating competition sued after being rushed to the hospital and undergoing uh, bladder surgery. Uh, What a shock that eating multiple fruitcakes would result in immediate, immediate need for emergency care. Uh, That one's, that one really shocked me, Tina, but what do you got? So um, Rich, I love those cases. I, you know, although I am a, you know, I'm Christian, I don't like fruitcakes. And after hearing that story, I don't know if I'm ever going to touch a fruitcake again. Um, one of my favorite uh, cases actually involves an employee uh, who was at a Trader Joe's. He worked for Trader Joe's and he was at a Christmas party. He received a very interesting present at the holiday party. Uh, a female employee gave him a gift resembling, shall we say, a small version of a particular body part on men. 
which when it gets submerged in water becomes a lot larger. He was apparently teased about the gift by the female employee, and he claims that he felt really embarrassed um, and filed an official complaint with Trader Joe's, who he claims then terminated him on the grounds that the company found his work unsatisfactory. Um, that whole turn of events is just really memorable. And then well, by the way, thing- I, I, but why, by the way, ironically, <laughs> as anyone who's seen Seinfeld knows, Water has the water has the opposite effect. It doesn't usually result in enlarging. Enlarging. Yeah, it usually has the opposite effect, but you know, it's not I digress. Yeah, and then I also love, you know, what I would call the National Lampoon Christmas Vacation case where you had this couple who live in Florida that were known for their very uh lavish holiday lawn decorations, which actually were more than 200,000 lights worth of decorations, including a three-story Christmas tree and a bunch of other decorations on their lawn. Um, They were sued for having too many decorations. And the court found that the city did a poor job of demonstrating that these decorations somehow harmed the city or caused a disturbance. So you know, all's to say that if you love decorating for the holidays, you should have at it as you deem fit. Absolutely. Uh, Sharon, one of the suits that we we didn't cover uh, involves one of the favorite retails in our home country uh, that you and I enjoy, Canadian Tire. Um, but, you know, they, they, these lot, yeah, Canadian Tire, what, sued Walmart for maybe allegedly knocking off their Christmas lights. But I imagine that the Canadian Tire lawsuit was followed by a lot of Sorries. Sorry to bug you, Walmart, because, you know, Canadians are known to be very apologetic people. That's why we don't sue very many, especially the likes of, of Walmart. Yeah, it's also 2015 case. So I would wonder yeah. how they feel. They probably feel differently now that Amazon's really come on the scene. We only we only could buy books on Amazon in 2015 in Canada. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure Canadian, Canadian Tire, Canadian Tire, uh, Ron and Tina, that was the place to shop for everything, everything from like snow tires to uh, hockey sticks uh, in Canada. Uh, one of the great retailers. And they would give you, by the way, you know how like Kohl's gives you that sort of Kohl's, but Canadian Tire was at the early stages of giving you back currency. It was actual money. They would like monopoly money they would give you with these weird pictures of people on there. And if you got some Canadian Tire money, you were, you were living large back in the day. Okay. Lisa, what are your thoughts? Lisa, what, what, who would you like to sue around the holidays and, and why? Oh, that's an excellent question. Well, I just want to say that I'm very happy that the court in Florida found for the people with the Christmas decorations, because that just brings joy to so many and they're paying the electricity bill. So what do right. I couldn't understand what was so upsetting? Um, I like holiday time. I also don't celebrate Christmas, but I really love this time of year. It's such it's just festive. And I even like all the I love all the Christmas music and I love Frosty the Snowman. So I'm a happy camper this time of year. All right, so going around the horn, finishing off our day here on Legal Face-Off, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit and uh, our other friends. So we talked about Frosty the Stone, and we talked about some very annoying Christmas music. Lisa, you just mentioned that you like some holiday music. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick one song to be tortured for 12 hours to as an inmate, what would it be? What holiday song would you not sue to stop getting played? I like Feliz Navidad. It reminds me of my childhood with my family, and I, I love the song. All right, nice, Sharon. I'm gonna go with like an Ave Maria or something mm. like that. No, you're doing the you're doing the uh, the Giants quarterback move. Tell me to do that. <laughs> you uh, already, I can already see myself hey. it, so. <laughs> oh, Ron, what would you not mind hearing for twelve consecutive hours? Well, that's a, that's a stretch, but maybe <laughs> War is Over, John Lennon song. Oh, oh, that's not that's too Christmassy. It's a you know universal and absolutely that was a good one, Tina. So um, piggybacking off of what Sharon said, the Chris Cornell version of Ave Maria is one of the most amazing versions. I've, I mean, first of all, just versions of that song ever, but in terms of vocal performances, amazing. And then I am a very big fan of Do They Know It's Christmas. It's 40 mm. years old, but I love that song just as much as I did when it came out 40 years ago. You got to wonder how cool in the gang snuck into that video, though. It's like, you know, every... Major, British. yeah. I mean, it's like you have every major British act, and then you have Cool in a Gang. 
Cool the Gang and Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd somehow slipped into the back of of uh, of Band Aid. I uh, I'm a big fan of um, uh, Christmas and Hollis by Run DMC. That's one of the uh, one of my favorites. And then uh, you know, of course, Merry Christmas, Baby by by Springsteen is a great one. But I wouldn't mind hearing those. But yeah, shoot me if I ever hear Frosty the Snowman for a second again. Well, what about the uh, uh, Leon Redbone Doctor John version of Frosty the Snowman? It's not that bad. Mm. Good artist, to too. Absolutely. Good one, Ron. Lisa, Leslie, you have any favorites back there in producer land? Uh, my like Santa be, Baby. Ooh. Oh, Santa Baby. Mine will probably be uh, Mistletoe by Justin Bieber. Mm, something from this century. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's our podcast for today. Uh, we would like to thank our guests for joining us on Legal uh, Face Off. Bob Fioretti, Jay Edelson, Professor Anthony Michael Christ, Sharon Fox, and Lisa Saul, and our producers, Lisa Stiegel and Ben Anderson. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. If you enjoy it, please rate five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Ron Brown. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.